This episode of Tales from Ostlantis is brought to you by Ostlantis Premium. Don't you just hate having your favorite podcast interrupted by ads like this? Well, dear listener, you're in luck. Because starting at just three bucks a month, you can support independent Chicano media and receive ad-free episodes, premium episodes, bonus content, and access to our Discord server. Just visit talesfromastlantis.com and click Go Premium, or follow the link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. You must excuse me. I've grown quite queer. This hasn't been easy, I know. But you've learned a lesson. A lesson in honesty. Honesty to yourself and honesty to others. That lesson will stand you in good stead all your life. I think we've all learned a good lesson. I've always heard that honesty is the best policy. Now I'm catching on to why that's so, 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 why that's so. Yalino Chimer, and welcome to Tales from Astlantis, the show where we explore Mesoamerican pseudo history, New Age nonsense, and other stories of adventure. We are your hosts, Curly Tlapoyawa and Ruben Ariano, also known as Tlacatecat. When one thinks of hotbeds of right-wing extremism and fascist movements, Mexico is probably the last place that comes to mind. Yet, Mexico has long been home to many far-right movements, often characterized by an affinity for Nazi symbolism and Catholic dogma, and sometimes even blended in with Mesoamerican identity. But where do these movements come from? What are their goals? And how have these movements influenced Mexican society today? Well, today we are joined by Dr. Luis Eran Avila. Luis is a historian of the Cold War in Latin America with an emphasis on conservative, anti-communist, and extreme right movements. After researching the comparative history of anti-communism in Mexico, Argentina, and Colombia, his current book project seeks to unveil the national and Latin American dimensions of right-wing activism in Cold War Mexico. The book project examines the history and Cold War transformations of right-wing dissidents to the Mexican post-revolutionary state and situates Mexico as a crucial hub for transnational anti-communist activism, shedding light on the various ways in which Mexican anti-communist forged links with Latin America, European, and East Asian fellow travelers. Dr. Eran Avila's publications in both English and Spanish reflect a range of related research interests such as right-wing youth, neo-fascism in Latin America, the history of political, <laughs> political crime in the Americas, and the intersections between banditry and insurgency. I like that. Banditry and insurgency. So, please join us in welcoming our guest today, Dr. Luis Eran Avila. Welcome, How Luis. How you doing, man? Hey, thank you for um, uh, the invitation, guys. I really appreciate uh, having a chance to talk about uh, my research here. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. So you're a, a professor at the University of New Mexico, my alma mater, and you've been teaching there for how long now? Uh, it's been uh, three years. Three years. And what uh, classes are you currently teaching? 
Uh, so I teach a range of things, uh, mostly 20th century Mexico. I also teach a, a course that it's basically an introduction to Latin American culture and society. Um, and also a few a, a graduate courses on uh, Latin America and the global Cold War, also on violence in Latin American history. Um, and what is the other thing? Oh, and inter-American relations, which sounds very boring, right? <laughs> but I tend to teach it. I tend to teach it, kind of try to uh, deviate from the standard uh, kind of diplomatic history and try to go more into things like gender and race and you know, cultural relations between the two Americas, as we, as we say. You spice it up a little bit. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I was telling Ruben earlier that, you know, because I, I don't get to go as often as I would like, but whenever I'm in Mexico City, I always go down to the Zocalo and I, I look for books. And every single time, without, you know, every single time I go down there, I see copies of... The Protocols of the Elders of Zion and copies of Mein Kampf being sold on the street. And that always blew my mind. And what it did was it, it, it sparked me to start doing research on, uh, like, what, why are these books even here? You know, what, what does Mexico have to do with these uh, far-right ideologies, with this anti-Jewish worldview? And... Just in my research and talking to people there, it really came out that, you know, there is a history of, of uh, you know, anti-Jewish, anti-Chinese, just basically anti-foreigner in general movements in Mexico. And they're often wrapped up in these right-wing worldviews, usually but not always couched in um, Catholicism, right? Because there are um, like the non-religious uh, right-wingers. But they generally tend to be couched in, in uh, Catholicism. And then the more research I did, I, I started seeing these right-wing groups that they had um, incorporated even Mesoamerican symbology into their movement, which I thought was super interesting and bizarre. So I, I am by no means an expert in right-wing Mexico, which is why we brought you on. So if you could elucidate for us the hell's going on in mexico man <laughs> right well that's uh, i mean it's a, a a complicated question but uh, i'll try to make it uh, as as um i mean as legible or as intelligible as possible uh, i mean mexico has a long history of uh let's say relations with right-wing ideologies particularly with uh let's say with fascism right uh so for instance in the 1920s relatively early in the 20s uh, as mussolini was rising in Italy, there is uh, a small and short-lived Mexican fascist party, right? Uh, Very urban, again, very small. It wasn't really, uh, you know, a major political actor, but it left an imprint, no, of this sort of, uh, as part of a sort of reaction to what was happening with the Mexican Revolution, right? The end of the Civil War phase of the Mexican Revolution, and then the beginning of sort of the, 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 the state building right era of the revolution, you have these these uh, reactionary ideologies, if you want to call them that, right? That were calling attention against the uh, the the danger that Mexico was going to become something like a, a Bolshevik Russia, right? Um, that fascist party didn't take off. Later, there was a um, 
another organization called the Confederation of the Middle Class, which sounds pretty harmless, right? Right, and I froze, I froze for a second. Yeah, this, this might happen a, a few times. So this Confederation of the Middle Class uh, was, again, a small urban uh, organization, but what they did was they did a propaganda campaign against communism, right? And for the defense of religion, the defense of family, traditional values, etc. And interestingly enough, just recently, uh, President Andres Manuel López Obrador, in one of his morning conferences, he showed, right, a, uh, a flyer from that Confederation of the Middle Class as an example of the long history of right-wing activism and right-wing propaganda in Mexico. And it was kind of a, you know, one of those moments in which a historian like me was like, oh, this is so great that the president, even the president is talking about this, you know? for his own purposes, mm -hmm. of course, no? not necessarily a scholarly interest. Uh, but it goes to show again how, you know, from the 1920s, even before uh, uh, Nazism and, and Hitler, right, uh, into the 1930s, what we see uh, is a sort of um, what I would call a sort of contest, right, or a conflict over the meanings of nationalism, right, and of revolutionary nationalism. So there are those that uh, are um, that embrace the revolution in some way um, in that find that uh, ideologies like Italian fascism or uh, uh, German Nazism are sort of um, also revolutionary ideologies that can help Mexico combat the danger of communism, atheism, anti-clericalism, etc. This, of course, happens prominent, more prominently during the, um, the presidency of Lázaro Cárdenas, right? who uh, is uh, the one that, you know, he's kind of an icon of what we could call Mexican social democracy, Mexican socialism even, right? So there was this very strong reaction to Lázaro Cárdenas' policies in education, right? The, 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 the fact that he um, basically... Uh, implemented a, a socialist model of education, which, you know, of course it gets complicated. It wasn't directly socialist, but socialist values and socialist outlook into education. You know? um, so while that is happening, uh, there is uh, what I would, it, it's still a small sector of Mexicans that see uh, Nazi Germany, uh, but also um, Uh, Franco's Spain, right? Uh, Portugal, right? With uh, Salazar, the Salazar dictatorship, and um, and of course, uh, still the example of, of Mussolini's Italy as sort of um, an alternative path, right, for Mexico, right, against the United States. And this is very important. This 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 particular strain of the right that kind of. Um, explodes in the 1930s is to some extent anti-imperialist, right? They are anti-Yankee, right? Um, so they, they see the fascist experiences as a way to, for Mexico to fight off this uh, harmful influence of the United States, um, to find or re rediscover its own roots, right? And then launch a sort of a project of uh, national greatness, 
that could be um, kind of um, similar to those that were happening again in Europe. You know? And inevitably, anti-Semitism becomes a very important part of this alternative national revolutionary ideology, right? And this is why uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion or Nazi, uh, Nazi literature uh, is, it has a place in Mexican history and, and it's a long history, right? Because people were reading those texts, translating and then reading those texts uh, very early on. No. So, and one of the um, go ahead, go for it. Well, I just want to understand you're saying that the reason why fascism took root in Mexico was due to the anti imperialist sentiment among Mexicans after the Mexican Revolution, and because of that streak of fascism that was supposed to combat. United States imperialism, therefore, if you're going to adopt fascism uh, that is coming from Europe through Italy and by extension from Germany, that you're also going to adopt anti-Semite views? Is that correct? Yes. I mean, to some extent, yes. Um, there is there is a, um, a historian and anthropologist, uh, Claudio Lomnitz, Mm -hmm. Maybe you guys uh, know his work. Um, he has this this little book. Um, I can't remember the exact title, but it's a book that talks about sort of the nationalism that is a kind of forms around the early years of the Mexican Revolution. What he argues is that that early nationalism was deeply anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I've read the book, and to my my sense is that he overstates the case a little bit. Uh, because not all uh, nationalism in the 1910s and 1920s was anti-Semitic, but there is a strong element of anti-foreign sentiment mm -hmm. in the Mexican Revolution, right? With uh, we know the history of the Porfirio Diaz dictatorship, right, favoring foreign interests, right? There was violence against uh, um, uh, foreigners during the Mexican Revolution, right? And there is indeed a sort of a, a combination of this uh, xenophobia, right, that comes from the Mexican Revolution with some of that very old uh, uh, strain of Catholic anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. right? So these different ideas, I mean, they sort of uh, converge and they, they, they result in different combinations. No? So we can say, well, they're anti-imperialist because they are Some, uh, for instance, against the United States, um, also because the United States represents not just, let's say, materialist capitalism, but also represents Protestantism, mm -hmm. right? which is a threat to Mexican Catholicism. Um, so there's that nationalist sort of Catholic element. Uh, the U.S. also represents liberalism. Mm, right. right. So, so um, and liberalism is an old enemy of the church mm -hmm. as well, right? Um, and by liberalism, you mean uh -huh. more like cultural libertarianism, not political liberalism. Uh, well, partly political liberalism because the, both the church and also sort of conservatives in general uh, despise the idea of popular sovereignty. Okay, right. 
yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, and and in Mexico, liberalism was born at a time where it was about, let's say, individual liberties and let's say free trade, but also about popular sovereignty, mm -hmm. right? So, so you know, with Juarez and all of these very strong liberal movements of the 19th century. So there's this idea, right, that the U.S. represents liberalism, Protestantism, materialism, right? So the anti-imperialism of these right-wingers is actually of a very, again, reactionary and conservative strain, right? And we usually don't think about anti-imperialism in that in that register. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, so the, the way in which this comes with fascism, which is weird, right? Because fascism is actually an imperialist ideology. Right. It's, mili it's militaristic. It's about conquest, right? Authoritarian. It's about expanding authoritarian dictatorship and all of these things, right? That seems so, to fall um, in line with Catholicism, <laughs> though. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, 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 and I will touch on that also. I, want, I also want to touch on that because um, we tend to think also of Uh, just as we think that anti-imperialism is only on the left, we tend to think, or at least scholars of, let's say, the Mexican right say, well, you know, the Mexican right, of course, there were some fascists, but it's not fascist because it's very Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that for some reason... Um, like religion is going to save them from being fascist? I mean, weren't the Italian fascist Catholic? And was a Mussolini a Catholic and Franco was a Catholic? And the Nazis, the Nazis were the state religion, so they were very. It's really re religiosity that drives it, whether it's Catholicism or something else. It's this idea right. of of supreme authority. We'll be back after a quick break. Have you picked up your Mexica calendar for the year 12 Flint, or how about a paperback copy of the Four Disagreements? Just visit talesfromastlantis.com for all the latest merchandise and show some love for your favorite podcast. That's talesfromastlantis.com for all the latest merchandise. Now, back to the show. Right. I mean, what, what some uh, historians, I mean, again, those that want to be moderate about the argument, what they say is, well... Um, The Nazi regime, for instance, was had a very strained relation, relationship with the Vatican, right? Which is partly true, but also they, uh, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of collaboration, right, between the Nazi regime and the Vatican. Um, what we know also is that the rest of Europe, for instance, Hungary, Romania, right, the Balkans, we have dozens of exper experiences with fascist dictatorship, dictatorship that was uh, also underpinned or supported by a Catholic ideology, mm -hmm. right? So this supposed uh, incompatibility between Catholicism and fascism, to my, I mean, in my opinion, is just nonsense, mm -hmm. right? And it actually helps us understand how um, Mexico Right, it helps us understand uh, the Mexican right-wing movements that emerge after the 1930s and the, the relative. Um, although they were never, you know, mass movements, they are very much present in the public sphere. They publish, they mobilize, they have rallies. Right, as as Curly was saying, right, you know, this, the, the circulation of this literature. Um, uh, 
fascist literature, Nazi literature, anti-Semitic literature is due to a great extent to the presence that these groups have in Mexican society, right? So, so it's kind of one of those things that um, it surprises a lot of people, but because it breaks with the with the usual narrative about what Mexico is well, as a country. I think it has uh, it kind of reeks of the um, special pleading fallacy, almost like yes. Um, there are fascists that were Catholic, but we're different over here in Mexico. We're not really fascists. We're kind of just conservative, ultra-conservative, but not necessarily fascist. So it's kind of like a special pleading, you know, make an exception for us because this is our pet ideology over here. And we don't They're want to be associated. Fascists. Exactly. We're lowercase fascists. <laughs> lowercase F. Right. <clears throat> well, one of the organizations that sticks out to me is the, um, the gold shirts. Mm. Right. And um, the Dorados, I think they were called. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is they, uh, they're still around. I actually, you know, they, they changed their name to Acción Revolucionaria Mexicanista. Or maybe they carried both names at the same time. I'm not sure. But if you get on Facebook or Twitter or social media, you still find uh, Acción Revolucionaria Mexicanista uh, groups. They're all closed. They're all private. I tried to join them, and they wouldn't accept my uh, my request because I was trying to get research done for this episode. But what I did Your find, reputation precedes you, Curly. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and I wish I knew which uh, newspaper this comes from, but this is from an American newspaper about the formation of the gold shirts. And the uh, headline is Mexican gold shirts to drive out foreigners. And it says, Mexico, Monday, a semi-military gold shirt organization whose immediate aim is to drive out of Mexico all Jews, Chinese, Arabs, Turks, Armenians, and other undesirable foreigners is being developed by former army officers as the ARM. So I guess they had the same name like at the same time. They were called the ARM and the gold shirts. But how effective can they be if they're wearing gold shirts? I mean, you can see them a mile away. Right. It's not very stealthy. Um, it says beyond this first objective, leaders of the movement say the purpose is to organize the people of Mexico so that they may achieve their social and economic independence by directing forces of public opinion. And then it goes on to say that the idea of the gold shirts, which are really blouses, it puts in parentheses, which is funny, was taken from Pancho Villa's favorite core, the, cami- the Camisas Doradas. The hat is a huichol straw, which looks something like a Texas sombrero. The coat of, this is interesting, the coat of arms is an Aztec shield and a makwawit. Um, and they, it says here they throw up a salute, which is their right, their right arm upraised with a, cl- a clenched fist, which they claim here is the old Aztec victory salute, which is nonsense. But it's interesting that this right-wing organization picked a shield and and you know they they still use this as their uh when was it formed nuestro escudo it's it's the chimali and it has a makwawi across it and in the center it says arm when was it and, when uh, was it formed was it the 1920s 1933 33 so so the the raised fist predates um the the black power movement and the Chicano movement. And, well, yeah, of course. But, I mean, it's usually attributed to <laughs> uh, its origins to 
the the Black Power movement. Interesting. Well, these guys are claiming it's the ancient Aztec victory salute. And then I also found an old newspaper um, put out by the Acción Revolucionaria Mexicanista. And the headline here is El Judío, El Chino y demás extranjeros indeseables. He ahí el peligro. So mm. if that gives you any clues to where these guys were coming from. <laughs> what say you, Luis? Well, they are they are definitely, I mean, a, a fascinating uh, organization. 1933, I mean, it's a key year also. That's the rise of uh, Adolf Hitler in Germany. Um, and it's not a coincidence, I think, that they founded their movement uh, at that time. Uh, I mean, what Curly just mentioned, for instance, of their background, uh, of some of the leadership, right, as uh, former Viguistas, is very interesting as well, no? because we're talking about uh, sort of the popular uh, did I freeze? You did. Yes, Can you say that again? Um, so I was, as I was saying, uh, yes, uh, so uh, that it's very striking that they are, you know, former Villistas, right? Because the Villismo is the popular element of uh, the Mexican Revolution, right? So these are not necessarily elite, right? Uh, wealthy elites. Well, well hold on, hold on. I, I, I may have uh, a difference of opinion uh, there. While maybe the people who were fighting with Villa were were common folk, but Villa represented the established elite of the North, as opposed to Zapata, who really led a popular front of campesinos and indigenous people who were unhappy with the way that the government was mistreating them in the South. So there is a difference. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense that the Villa's, yes, the Villa's followers a- would be... Uh, more fascistic uh, or inclined to be more fascistic than, say, Zapatistas? Yes. I mean, here's the thing. Um, I guess what I meant was that Villismo, let's say, as a a program, if there was such a program, right? There's a lot of discussion about whether Villa actually had a platform of revolutionary transformation, right. <laughs> but the the basis, the the let's say the, the most of Villa's fighters, for instance, were very much uh, you know poor rural workers, miners, and people like that. You know? What happens is that, of course, when when the when the new revolutionary elite is formed, right, all of these former fighters become generals and things like that. Um, there. Uh, <clears throat> There is a, a struggle for power, no? and there is this. There are these factions, such as uh, the one led by Nicolás Rodríguez. That's the name of the, the uh, leader of the uh, Golden Shirts. Um, they they actually espouse an ideology that is very much um, popular, or you know, I don't want to use the word populist, but it's something like that, right? They appeal to you know the Mexican people. Right. And these deep historical roots, right, such as the Aztecs and uh, things like religion. Right. Because they're, they, they don't only combine. Uh, I mean, they do combine uh, Aztec symbology with things like the importance of uh, Catholic religion as part of national identity and the Hispanic legacy in Mexican culture. You know? So it's it's you can say, well, that's an elite or a ideology or an ideology of the wealthy Mexicans, but it has this popular component, which is very interesting, the ideology of, of the movement itself. No? 
Um, and another thing that's important here is that their their beginnings are mostly about xenophobia, right? It's about the Chinese, about the Jews, and in, in, in any other foreigners, particularly Middle Easterners, that are already were established uh, in, in Mexico. No? Um, and this is, uh, again, uh, similar to uh, fascist experiments in Europe. It's very similar to right-wing and fascist ideologies that are also developing in the United States at the same time. Well, I mean, you know, talk about what's happening now. I mean, if you were to just exactly. transpose some words, we could just say that this is Trumpism, essentially, in the United States. Yeah. Well, the basis of their ideologies, we can uh, actually sum it up and saying Mexico first. Mm-hmm. It's very right? nationalistic. Yeah, well, in fact, their, their slogan of the ARM was Mexico right? para los mexicanos. Right. Exactly. So it was exactly. like right there in black and white. We knew exactly, exactly where these guys were coming from. Exactly. And very interesting also that they do have, because of their connection to Villismo, they claim to have this legitimacy as a revolutionary group. Right. They're not they're not saying we are against the Mexican Revolution, but they're saying we are kind of carriers of the real, authentic, popular spirit. Yeah, we're like the, the next logical evolution of the revolution is right. what we're bringing to the people. What was exactly. Villas? Um, do we know what he thought about these these uh, this, this emergent fascistic populist party? Oh no, he he was dead. He was that he he was killed. Villa was killed in in 1923. Oh, okay. So he didn't he didn't get to didn't see get to... the. I guess what I was trying to ask, so during his time when he was still alive, this wasn't occurring at all. This happens years after the fact. Okay. Yes, yes, hmm. yes. And, and and another thing, for instance, I mean, I, I mean, for instance, in my research, at least, a very important component of what the Golden Shirts are saying is, you know, watch out for communism, right? It's the foreigners, but it's foreigners that bring communism. Also, you know, those are a problem. So the, 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 there is a strain very early on, even within the official party, right? In the 1920s, before the PNR is formed, but then after 1929, when it is formed, that is very anti-communist, right? That is revolutionary, that is nationalistic and anti-communist. So uh, while the gold shirts might seem extreme, they actually worked together with the Plutarco Elias, uh, Plutarco Elias Calles presidency to crack down on radical left-wing uh, union movements, mm-hmm. labor movements. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. They were used as uh, basically as shock troops. Right? Um, and you might wonder, well, why, why was Calles, right, a revolutionary president of using far-right uh, thugs, basically, to... to um, to, to beat to beat uh, beat up the the, the communists or, or the leftists, well, it's a political expedience, right? Um, so so there's this very interesting relationship between the Golden Shirts and the Mexican state that ba- that basically used uh, this far right movement in particular to um, to crack down on on radicals, particularly in, in the north in, in Monterrey, for instance. There's there are stories about these epic battles and streets, right, between left-wing uh, union organizers and and the, and the Golden Shirts. 
So I noticed that you, most of um, the the conversation has centered around uh, the time of the revolution or after that. And, you know, it, may, it might be anachronistic to refer to previous uh, conservative movements, uh, in, especially in the 19th century, as being fascistic or being fascist. But is there some precedence that you can that you can sort of uh, uh, point to? Uh, with what's happening in the post-revolutionary period to what was going on uh, before that? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question, no? because the, I mean, the, the umbrella term would be conservative. conservative right? Right? Yeah, but, but something more uh, fascistic in hmm. nature. Right, right. Uh, I mean, yes, it would be anachronistic to say, I don't know, that Iturbide was mm -hmm. a kind of pr proto-fascist or something like that. Yeah. But we do see that... Um, Folks that, that embraced uh, fascistic ideas in the 20th century, they do have this obsession with, for instance, the Mexican Empire, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, or with uh, conservative uh, political figures, uh, such as, for instance, Lucas Alaman, who was, you know, he has, I, I will give Lucas Alaman credit for being kind of an interesting political thinker, but he's a figure of Mexican conservatives, right? right? Um, so there is a kind of use of that 19th century history, right, to talk about um, a kind of a longstanding Mexican conservative tradition, right, that then folks in, let's say, the 1940s, 1950s, and, and later on will continue to vindicate and say this is what it means to be conservative, mm -hmm. right, the defense of the nation, the defense of Catholicism, the defense of tradition, and on all of these, um, uh, you know, even things like family values can go in there, right? Uh, against the forces of anti-clericalism, liberalism, mm -hmm. Judaism, communism. Well, it's funny that you guys were so like, forth. "Is it? It's anachronistic to call them fascists. What's a better word?" And I'm like, Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes. oh, speaking of like the modern day or the more recent uh, formulations of these uh, worldviews, Netflix has that new documentary out called Who Killed Manuel Buendia? I believe that's what the documentary is called. And in it, they talk about an organization at the university in Guadalajara, I believe. Mm -hmm. That is correct. And they were called the, um, the Tecolotes, right? Or Los Tecos. Mm -hmm. um, can you... Uh, fill us in on these guys because it, it, it sounds like they had a really interesting history. Yeah. They, they emerge uh, again, not coincidentally also in the nine, early 1930s, actually in 1934, uh, they basically um, it's a secret society, right? So, so a lot of what we know about them is by hearsay or it's by sometimes by testimonies from testimonies from people that, we're members of this secret so wait, society. So are these like the Illuminati? They exist, but they don't exist? Sort of like that. Yes. There's a lot of, there's a lot of urban legend about them, but also a lot of truth about what, what they think and what they do. You know? So they, they appear in 1934. They are a, there is a battle in, in many parts of Mexico against socialist education, right? So um, um, it's, it emerges from a student organization, the Federation of Students of Jalisco, right? And that was led by Carlos Cuesta Gallardo, who was an engineering student, uh, very young at the time. 
uh, also a very uh, mysterious figure because we we there's no pictures of him. He was very he cares public, right? Was this kind of um, very um, again uh, shadowy figure, right? Um, so it's this organization appears as a kind of again secret society, fraternal society, um, ultra Catholic, fighting against socialism, and they eventually get the support of um, businessmen and of Catholic organizations uh, in or the church, of course, uh, to found the uh, Autonomous University of Guadalajara. Right? It was called the University of the West back then, meaning of, of Western Mexico, right, in Guadalajara. Uh, later on, they changed the name to Autonomous University of Guadalajara, and the idea was to have a kind of center of anti-socialist, pro-Catholic education and activism, right, in this very important city in Western Mexico, right? So they evolve, these tecos evolve, again, as a kind of secret society that has connections to um, business organizations. It ends up having very strong connections to the Mexican state, particularly in the 1960s. Um, they have, of course, connection to the church, into a series of other, let's say, sectors of Mexican civil society. You know? And uh, today they don't really, um, I mean, today they're more a lot more careful, right? Um, with their, let's say, their public image. Um, you, you don't hear really about the Tecos uh, today, but they still own the Autonomous University of Guadalajara. They still run it. And it's a very conservative institution. You know? The interesting part here, again, to connect it back to the gold shirts is that, that uh, Carlos Cuesta Gallardo, the leader of Los Tecos, is said, we don't really know, there's no actual proof of this, is said to have spent some time in Nazi Germany in the mid-1930s, hmm. right? that he actually met with uh, high-ranking of officers of the Nazi party. We are not sure if this is true. What is true is that he did espouse uh, strongly anti-Semitic ideas, um, it, that he never was never, let's say, uh, a full-blown Nazi, but certainly a Catholic fascist. Well, right. you know, um, in preparing for this um, talk with you, um, I think both of us, uh, me and Curly, found the very same article independently, and uh, it's called... Um, Mexico, a fascist group called Tecos, and it's got a really long title. And it's it's uh, published in '99 by um, uh, outfit out in Canada that's uh, associated with um, with the uh, United Nations. It's called uh, something Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada, and in it they talk about Carlos Cuesta Gallardo de Tecos, but they also go on to say that there's another guy by the name of Raimundo Guerrero. Yes. who was recruited into the organization by Gallardo. According to Anderson and Anderson, the Tecos have close links with the remnants of the Romanian Iron Guard fascist of Oriasima in Spain. And the group publishes the anti-Semitic magazine Replica, serving as a liaison among right-wing death squads throughout Latin America. The Tecos joined uh, an organization whose acronym is, is the WACL, I forget what that stands for, in 1972. And then they are uh, more than just a collection of aging Nazis. Apparently, 
Manuel Buendia is the one that exposed the, their connection to Nazism when, before he was assassinated. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so what can you tell us about about those more sort of intimate connections that they have beyond just like your typical Nazi? Like, what about these other groups in Spain and elsewhere that they're connected to? Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, the, uh, that international, let's say, projection of this sector of the Mexican right is very interesting. It's actually a very important part of my research. Um, Raimundo Guerrero, the guy that you mentioned, he's a sort of a pupil of um, Carlos Cuesta Gallardo. He is, I believe, a law professor uh, at, at the Autonomous University of Guadalajara. And he becomes sort of the, the public and international face of the Mexican, this wing of the Mexican anti-communist sort of uh, universe, you want to call it. He um, indeed becomes a sort of Mexico's representative to the WACL, which is the World Anti-Communist. Oh, that's right. That's right. right? Um, and this is also a very interesting organization. It's basically this conglomerate of, of a government and non-governmental organizations from all around the world, which sole purpose is to fight communism in any way they can, right? including, of course, violence. You know? So in that organization, you have people that are kind of, you know, more on the liberal side of anti-communism, if you want, uh, kind of more business-oriented uh, folks. But you also have former Nazi collaborators, uh, uh, Eastern European uh, fascists that fled Europe, of course, and that found refuge in in places like the United States, right, in, in South America, etc. Um so Mexico has a presence in this uh, organization um, and through Los Tecos, right? They represent Mexico by saying, they, they, they have this narrative about themselves, no? by saying, well, you know, we have been fighting communism since the late 1920s, right? With the Cristero War, right? We are the inheritors of the Cristeros. That is the narrative that that these Mexican anti-communists are used. Mm, mm. We were fighting socialism, right? Uh, Even before Spain was fighting, right? Anarchism and communism during the Spanish Civil War, right? So they create this narrative about Mexico being at the forefront of uh, this anti-communist struggle. And they, they come together, you know, very, in a very smooth way with uh, folks like, Former um, Iron Guard officers from Romania, they come together also with um, with some uh, Croatian fascists, right? The, the infamous Ustasha, that, that was kind of that that fascist movement mm-hmm. in, in in Croatia. Um, they come together with uh, Ukrainian uh, fascists as well, um, uh, German neo-fascists, uh, South American. Everyone's there. Right. They're part of this kind of uh, uh, what some people have called the Black International, right? As opposed to the Red International, mm-hmm. you have a neo-fascist international that is um, sort of uh, flourishing, particularly in the 1970s. Right? Uh, and again, the Mexicans are there, and they they are a, a very important part of that of that ecosystem. So right. the um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but 
I, I think I read that the, the Autonomous University of Guadalajara and the Tecos were super supportive of Vicente Fox and Pan, and that some of them even served on his cabinet, like that he had appointed members of the Tecos to his cabinet. I don't know if I, if I misread that or because I was going through stuff really quick. But regardless, can you touch on, on their yes. relationships with the, you know, Fox and the presidency and, and the Pan? Kind of the later development of that of that strain, no? I mean, yes, uh, the uh, the Tecos certainly. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure they were pleased by the fact that that the PAN was in power for two uh, for two terms, right? For twelve years, um, the relation between the relationship between the Fox administration and the right in general was very close. And indeed, there were uh, far-right groups or ultra-conservative organizations in Fox's uh, cabinet, right? Um, and the most prominent figure was Carlos Abascal, who was a minister, the one minister of interior with, uh, under Fox. And Carlos Abascal, his father, Salvador Abascal, was one of the founders of the Sinarquista movement, right? Mm. This movement that stemmed from the Cristeros, right? And that was formed in 1937. And that also espoused a lot of ideas uh, and even rituals that resembled fascism. And I would even say they were fascist <laughs> to a great extent, <laughs> right? Uh, so that, that that's a direct family connection with, with this kind of fascist legacy in Mexico, right? As far, uh, uh, let's say, insofar as, as, as to the Tecos influence in the Fox uh, sort of presidency, there were, they didn't have, let's say, a, a, a person directly in the cabinet or in high ranking posts. The group that had uh, a few people is this other group called El Yunque. El, el Yunque, Yunque is a that's, sort of a... Yes, el that's Yunque. who I got these guys mixed up with. It was El right. Yunque. El Yunque, the anvil, right? So this group is actually, it's very interesting because a lot of people tend to conflate them with Los Tecos. And what happens is that uh, in the 1950s and early 60s, there's a split within the ultra-conservative movements in, in Mexico, right? So you have one strain, which is Los Tecos, that they are traditionalist Catholics, right? But then by 1962, 65, right, with the Second Vatican Council, the embrace by the church of all of these ideas of modernizing Catholicism, these guys say, screw that. We are traditionalists and we're going to abide by the old church. We only want our mass in Latin. Exactly. Is this a split right. between the Tecos and Muro? Uh, I forget what Muro stands yes, for. Yes, exactly, exactly. Muro is part of the of the bigger umbrella that we call Yunque, right? uh, which is this, okay. it's it's a collection of um, of Catholic traditionalist organizations. The difference is that they they sort of um, rather than dismissing the authority of the Pope, which is what the Tecos do yeah. in the sixties, they say, you know, we don't agree with modernism, with the modernization of the Church. But we respect and abide by the authority of Pope uh, Paul VI. What's that? Fascist light is what we get with the Yunque. Yes, sort of. 
right? They're more, they, for them, it's more, it, we can say it's a, just a different strain of that Mexican fascist Catholic sort of tradition, right? So Yunque, Muro, and a bunch of other organizations are actually clashing with Los Tecos for decades. There's, act, it's act, there's actually violence. People get, get killed over these confrontations between the two factions. You know? So, and to go back to, to Curly's question about Fox, there were some uh, uh, ministers and sort of uh, and, and, all, and other public officials during his administration that were members of Yunque, right? From Querétaro, from Guanajuato, from Jalisco. I mean, there were a, a really, you know, there were at least a dozen of them that were in, in prominent positions, including the presidency of the PAN itself, you know, the leadership of the, of the party. You know? And a lot of them are still around. Um, the PAN is no longer in, in, at least it doesn't have the presidency, but, uh, but they, have, they have a lot of power, uh, instance, again, in these states that I just mentioned, you know? uh, in, the, in the kind of central western region of Mexico. Um, it's a hotbed of Mexican conservatism. But they still have Fox as a spokesperson. I mean, what do you make of uh, his uh, outspokenness during the Trump administration? How does that fit into all this? It's uh, right. Fox and kind of kind of uh, his uh, incursions into into uh, Twitter and YouTube and making fun of Trump, which you know it's probably the only good thing that Fox has done in his life. You know? <laughs> uh, I mean, first get the PRI out of power, which I will give him credit for, but then you know uh, make fun of Trump, you know, and, and be an outspoken anti-Trumpist. Yeah. But I mean, he's still. Uh, uh, I mean. Uh, a prominent representative of this. He's still a panista kind of, at heart. Uh, he's still a panista at heart, right? Business, a church, right? Traditional values, and and you know, anti-socialist, anti-left, anti-progressive, mm-hmm. etc. Well, you know, Curly's not going to admit to this, but it, uh, didn't you take a picture with him once in Dallas? When no, he wanted. It. I was going to bring this up. I was going to okay. say the actually the other best thing he ever did is he wanted to take a photo with me. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't there. So we were doing Danza Azteca. I think it was uh, like a Cinco de Mayo yeah, or um, I, 16 I think I missed, It was I missed probably that 16. Event. Yeah. So it was this big event for the 16. And this was before he, you know, was elected. He was running for president at the just time. Started. Yeah. yeah, he was running for president. And he saw all these danzantes. So he walked up to us and he was like, oh, I want to take a picture with you. And so uh, my wife and I bounced. We just like, <laughs> boop, boop, boop. like just got out of the the picture, and um, like, no, no, we're we're good, bro. <laughs> I think everybody else took a picture yeah. just to be polite. Like this guy's a you know presidential candidate, yeah. and he had a lot of supporters there. I remember yes. at this. It was in Den- uh, Dallas. Dallas. Wasn't and, it at the uh, church though, the Catedral de Santario downtown? Was that, wasn't that where it was? Man, I don't even remember. Um. It was a uh, it was a parade. It was okay. So I don't remember the. So it might have been on Jefferson actually. The Cinco de Mayo parade in, in down Jefferson. But he showed up, and I just remember a lot of people cheering when he got out of the car, and he had a lot of bodyguards, and his bodyguards looked like straight up white dudes, like they were tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, Jason like Bourne, straight up European dudes, and. Uh, <laughs> just speaking to each other in you know Mexican Spanish. So I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And I. I I didn't realize who it was until he had got closer. And I was like, ah, <laughs> get away. 
<laughs> but yeah. I mean, and he he was a very he was a very popular, uh, particularly as a candidate, no, as a president. You know, the popularity of course declined, um, but that popularity sort of uh, concealed the fact that the group that was behind his candidacy was a very, very, very conservative uh, sector of the PAN. I mean, the PAN has different factions. It has had but, but this was known decades. even during during the election. Like, this this was public that he had that very conservative backing. It wasn't a big secret. Because I remember that. Right. Right. But sort of people kind of, you know, bracketed that. Because he, I mean, he did have, I mean, he did, I mean, he had the, the, the potential and he actually defeated the PRI, no? Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the the excitement about his candidacy was uh, mostly because of that. No, now in places like Jalisco, Querétaro, and Guanajuato, his, his home state of Guanajuato, people uh, threw uh, their support behind him because he represented he represented you know this precisely a lot of these original uh, sort of Catholic conservative um, currents undercurrents. In Mexican society and Mexican politics, right? So it was it was kind of a double game that he was playing. I am going to be the one that's going to defeat the PRI and bring democracy, right? Finally, but you know I'm also going to advance agendas that have been suppressed for a long time, right? And which is which is what his government actually brought. Mm-hmm. You know? So then, within the PAN, maybe you could touch briefly on um, what, what were they calling them? Los uh, Morenazis. I believe that the uh, the National Front, the Frente Nacionalista de México, mm-hmm. there was strong suspicions that they were started by members of the PAN. And a lot of the members of this group, there were photos with them, uh, mm-hmm. with representatives of the PAN. I remember seeing them, but mm-hmm. I haven't really heard it much about them. They came out in like 2006 and I just remember seeing all these guys dressed like Nazis, like dark is my dad right like <laughs> like straight up indigenous looking guys dressed like nazis carrying this this flag that they have like this weird it's almost like the naui olin symbol oh, but it's right. a little I remember bit those guys, yeah, it's distorted yes. and um the the rumor was at the time that the ban was either behind their formation or one of their big supporters yeah i mean and this is a long history there's a long history of of um the youth sort of section of the PAN, right? The youth groups of the PAN being attracted to uh, far-right ideologies. For instance, I found, I mean, there's, pro- there's probably examples from before, but I found, for instance, um, a prominent member of Muro, right? Of this uh, far-right student organization from the 60s. He actually began his career, his political career, as uh, a member of the, of the PAN. He was a PANista, right? And he was... He left the PAN, right, because he was disillusioned with the PAN being a sort of Christian democratic party. They thought they were too moderate, right? And this guy was from uh, from Guanajuato, right, from Celaya, I believe, to a very conservative uh, city. Um, so he moves on and he becomes not only a, a leader of Muro, but also a sort of a link to other neo-fascist organizations in Latin America and also in Europe, right? Um, he's actually known. His nickname was El Führer. So you can oh. imagine. So you can imagine, you know, yeah. So you can imagine how how um, 
you can just imagine the personality, you know, like the, the type of uh, of panista and the type of of right winger that he was, right? Very much on the on the extreme, no. So these Morenasis that you that you mentioned, Curly. I mean, you know, you can probably look all throughout the seventies, eighties, and up to today. And there's always been, let's say, um, a, a kind of attraction, right, um, in these young people that are part of the PAN, again, particularly in that region of Mexico, um, that find that Nazism, for some reason, makes sense. Right? Well, it's, it, yeah, it speak, speaking of Nazis, I was wondering if perhaps, since we're on the subject now, I mean, not that we haven't been, but more so, what can you tell us about Salvador Borrego Escalante and his book, Derrota Mundial? What's going on right. there? Well, so there's a lot going on there. Uh, and, to, and to use the Morenazis also as an entry point to that, I mean, Salvador Borrego died very recently, uh, 2018, 17. Yeah, he was remember. like 104. Get out something. of here. It's crazy. Yeah, he was, he was really... Uh, I mean, he and he was he was kind of immortal, right? Um, until I mean, he was uh, you know ninety nine or something like that. He was still giving uh, lectures and conferences, right? A lot of them for uh, pan groups, hmm. like local pan organizations, right? Catholic organizations, um, and many of them <clears throat> happen to be. Uh, youth organizations, very similar to those uh, in which these Morenazis sort of emerged. You know? So Salvador Rego is sort of, uh, I mean, he is the most important neo-Nazi uh, slash fascist writer and author, I will say, of Latin America. Yeah, um, well, before we get too deep into it, we should mention that his book, Derrota Mundial, or The Worldwide Defeat, um, so this was published originally in the 50s, I think, like 1953. And it's been, I mean, they've released over 50 editions of it in multiple languages. I found a copy in English that was released this year, copyright 2021. And um, the, the thesis of his book, The Derrota Mundial, The Worldwide Defeat, is that when the Allied forces defeated Hitler... It was a loss for the entire world because then the forces of the Jews and the communists were going to overtake the world and that all humanity lost when Hitler lost. That's the argument that he's trying to make in this book. And this dude's a Mexicano and it just blew my mind. Find, you were the one who brought it up to me. You, you were the first to mention him to me. So I looked him up. And I was like, what the hell? But the thing that really caught my eye is that the foreword to his book <laughs> is written by Jose Vasconcelos. Dun, dun, dun. The, you know, we've covered him on the show before, Nazi mm -hmm. sympathizer, creator of the whole La Raza Cosmica nonsense. And he writes this glowing foreword to this book mm -hmm. in praise of Hitler. And I just want to quote real briefly from Vasconcelos' uh, foreword. He says, the distribution of the book by Borrego is of the highest patriotic interest for all Spanish-speaking peoples. Us, 
heirs of the epic of the reconquest that saved Christendom of the invasion of the Moors and of the counter-reformation headed by Philip II that saved Catholicism of the perilous conspiracy of the Lutherans and Calvinists. No one is more obligated than us to unmask the hypocrites and to contain the advance of the perverse. I mean, this guy was swinging from Borrego's nuts, man, and... (laughs) It's so bizarre because Vasconcelos, you know, if you don't know Mexican history, you know, he really helped develop the whole national identity of the Mexicano as being the mestizo, quote unquote, and that being the national character of the uh, of the country, of what made a Mexican a Mexican. And but his his version of what a mestizo was, right? This mixed blood person was more like totally praising the European and then trying to drag the indigenous kicking and screaming into modernity, right? And so he had a very, very white supremacist. I mean, the guy was a Nazi sympathizer. Um, So for him to write the foreword of this book by Salvador Borrego makes perfect sense. But anyway, that's my little intro to... For the listeners, if they don't know who he is or what the book is about. No, I think, I mean, and, and I think you, you bring up, a, a, I mean, a very important connection there with Vasconcelos. As you said, he's, you know, the credited for being kind of the most prominent figure of, of what we can call Mexican cultural nationalism, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and of course, I mean, it, there, there's a kind of a, a, a weird thing about, let's say, Vasconcelos' relationship with Nazi ideology, which is that if you read the cosmic race, he uh, he argues that I mean he actually argues like against racial supremacy, right? He he says you know the white race is not you know the white race has done horrible things because of the white supremacy ideology, but then he what he embraces is a sort of Hispanic mm-hmm. supremacy, yeah. right? He makes a distinction between Anglo-Saxon whiteness and Hispanic civilization. No? If you read Borrego, not not uh, a worldwide defeat, but other of his writings where he gets into all of these theories about Mexican national identity and all that stuff, you see that he um, he's basically the, the the continuator of this tradition that begins with Vasconcelos. Right? He talks about Mexico as a sort of um, unfinished nation. Right, kind of a, a young nation whose identity is still being formed and that needs to be protected from the forces of Judaism and communism. Right. Um, I mean, there's all of this uh, sort of a kind of metaphysical elaboration no, about Mexican national identity. Um, so aside from being a neo-Nazi, right, this uh, Salvador Borrego, um, he was also a... Um, Again, a sort of a intellectual uh, paragon of the Mexican far right. And again, not only of the Mexican far right, but of the far right in Central America, in South America, in Spain, right? There are uh, Spanish editions of his works. And uh, I mean, as you say, Curly, I mean, also in the United States, because in the end, there is a, a uh, an attraction and appeal for these revisionist takes on, on um, the history of World War II, that it's all about, you know, essentially, uh, you know, glorifying, you know, Hitler 
and 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 um, deprecating, you know, the juice. Like yeah, well, it, it before he died, um, and I found a photo of this uh, before Borrego died. Uh, David Duke visited him in Mexico. Like David Duke traveled to Mexico and like had a sit down with uh, Salvador Borrego, and they took a photo of it, which is interesting because. You know, when people think about white supremacy and, uh, you know, racism, people like, well, you know, Mexicans can't be racist. But as you've shown, there's a long history couched yeah. in these far right movements of just built on Catholicism, fascism, authoritarianism that just kind of lends itself naturally to becoming, you know, very racist. So not only fascist and far right, but just outright racist. And, and it also sort of um, connects to the, the 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 lost cause ideology of people who still believe in like um, celebrating the Confederacy and waving the Confederate flag and you know protesting that the flag doesn't represent racism, that it represents culture. And, you know, you have to question, well, what culture is it representing really? And so if you do the comparison between those people who celebrate the lost cause of the Confederacy, and then you, you sort of compare those to the Nazis. And for example, with, with books like this one, uh, The World Defeat, it's, it's a very similar uh, rhetoric that's being espoused here between uh, both ideologies because they both lost right and there and there's this mm -hmm. sense that that's that had these people won the world would be a better place and the reason why it's terrible now is because we had these losses that humanity uh, didn't take advantage of because of the evil forces that are at play that we must continue to fight that we must continue mm -hmm. to go against and 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 continue to uh wreak violence among those people that mm -hmm. are within our ranks and people who are coming and invading our show. So it's, it's the yeah. same kind it's of rhetoric. Forever war. It's, yeah. It's an eternal uh, xenophobic, um, racist, uh, fascistic, um, ideology that seems to prop its head, uh, from time to time in, in different forms, but it's the same, it's the same kind of, uh, at the very basic, mm -hmm. at its core, it's the, almost the very same elements that you can find uh, when when you do a side by side comparison with these these movements. Mm -hmm. Well, so the big question is: is just so how popular is this book in Mexico, or how popular has it been uh, in the past? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to tell. Let's say. I mean, it depends how you measure popularity. No? I mean, as you said, it has uh, over fifty editions, right? And if you kind of add up the the, the the numbers it's you know hundreds of thousands of of actual copies you know of actual copies yeah. you know that have circulated in Mexico and beyond Mexico no? and now of course with the internet you know, things are I mean with electronic books it's, it's just so much easier no? well yeah actually but, I have a PDF uh, copy that I downloaded on Academia anyone can just basically download this thing so besides the physical copies yeah. who knows how many people have downloaded this thing worldwide. Right. And this is and there's and there's 20, a there's a bunch of uh, the, the copy that I have, right? Very recent, no? Uh, I mean, and there's a bunch of of uh, editions which are really kind of more like pirate editions mm -hmm. that are from uh, from just all over the world, right? I've seen like Bolivian editions, Argentine editions, uh, Chilean editions of of this book, no? Because it's so, it was so important when it came out 
but it's become this um, part of a canon, right? In the Spanish-speaking world, particularly, uh, that is, you know, for neo-Nazis, but also for many other, uh, let's say, um, st strains of of right-wing uh, politics. No, it's for neo-Nazis. Let's say those that you know wear the swastikas and the Nazi uniforms, but also for you know people that are you know far-right Catholics mm -hmm. right? that don't necessarily you know embrace the Nazi thing, but they will read. Salvador Borrego, because he's such a an important figure for uh, for right wing Catholic thought in in, in the region, no? um, and also I mean going back to something you were saying, Ruben, um, which I think I mean connects sort of uh, Salvador Borrego and this idea that you were saying of, of sort of the lost cause. No, it's uh, for instance in his case it's about yes Hitler and World War II, but For the the Mexican right wingers that read his work, the lost cause was the Cristero War. Ah, good one, right? Yeah. Uh, and and this is something that I that I try to sort of uh, emphasize in my research, right? This idea of the post Cristero right, sort of what happens to the Mexican right after the Cristero War, and this narrative, right, of an epic battle against the forces of anti clericalism mm -hmm. and communism. That yes, we were defeated, right? And actually, we were betrayed by the church. This is the narrative, right? Because the church signs the accords with the with the Mexican government. But then this is a battle that just extends all throughout uh, the 20th century, right? So it's the the some survivors of the Cristero War, then the sons and daughters of the Cristeros. And then the the grandsons and granddaughters of the Cristeros and so on and so forth that continue this this battle, right? Uh, and and it's it's there today in Mexican society, right? These references to the Cristero War as um, you know what inspires, for instance, people mobilizing against uh, or protesting against López Obrador, right? They saying, you know, López Obrador represents socialism and communism, and you know, this is this is what our forefathers fought for in mm -hmm. back in 1926, 1929. Yeah, but what did uh, you think of the movie? I know I was just going to ask the same <laughs> thing. Didn't it come out like in what 2012 for Greater Glory, and it was for Greater Glory, um, and, and I yes. remember Andy it Garcia being was the, the he, yeah he did the the role of uh, um, Gallos, right? No, he did the role of the Cristero, the Cristero commander, uh, whose yeah. name uh, slips my mind right what now. It wasn't Calles uh, that he portrayed. No, Calles. Actually, Calles. That's that, this is a, a, something I show my students all the time uh, with Andy Garcia, right, as the yeah. protagonist. But then Calles is played by Ruben Blades. Oh, that's right. That's right. It's <laughs> which is which is like the weirdest yes. casting uh, ever. <laughs> well, I remember the Catholic Church was like. Pushing it, I would see it advertised yeah. on yeah. Uh, on Spanish language TV all the time, and mm -hmm. there was all this saying like people thought Opus Dei had uh, produced it or had a hand in producing it, and yes. people were like, "Yeah, we really need to see this movie." And I'm like, "Do you know who these people were? <laughs> like, <laughs> this was like the the Mexican Taliban, bro. <laughs> like, I don't know if we want to be supporting this movement." And and Andy Garcia. Uh, It promoted the movie a lot in the U.S. It, by saying, "Well, this is a movie about religious freedom, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That's that's how it was painted. So so to to appeal to a to an American audience, right, a conservative audience, of course, right, he framed it in that way. Uh, and then, but then the role of the church and of the Opus Dei, I think it's been documented. Uh, and it's also very interesting because it's a kind of a transnational effort, right? It's a movie that that has, uh, for instance, uh, one of the guys, if I remember correctly, that I think he's in the movie or that he endorsed the movie or produced or something like that. Eduardo Veraste, who is a, a Mexican telenovela actor, right? who is a major right-winger, like pro-life and all that. Uh, and he actually became a major spokesman for Trump in the United States. Hmm. Right? What? So, yes, you can look him up, Eduardo Verastegui. And he's just a fascinating figure. And he, but he is, he, he uh, had some participation in that, with that uh, movie. No? And again, this also goes to show that, that, uh, this, let's say, Mexican and Latin American right-wing movements also have this sort of uh, cruel industry aspect to their work, particularly in more recent years, right? Where they are, you know, making inroads into things like cinema. Yeah, which he played was Enrique Gorostieta. Enrique Gorostieta, yeah. The uh, IMDb says. The, so uh, one yes. of the things that Ruben and I, um, I don't know if you've ever listened to this podcast before, but you should. Um, it's one of the things that Ruben and I really spend a, invest a lot of our time investigating is like the origins of the Mexicayo movement of La Mexicanidad, um, the Partido de la Mexicanidad, you know, mm-hmm. this uh, nationalist movement that came out around like roughly the same time. Yeah, it was, all this it was stuff. post-revolutionary. Um, yeah, all this stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm. And what we found... Um, I don't remember if it was uh, Rodolfo Nieva Lopez or if it was Juan Luna Cárdenas, but one of them, they say he did have like strong uh, uh, sympathies towards the Nazis. And that's, um, it's always sat, you know, sat with me as like, ah, oh, shit, man. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> this is terrible. And I think it goes back to what you were saying, Luis, that, that uh, with Buendia, uh, for example, that Yes, there's there's this sense of or oh, not when they have Vasconcelos that there's this sense that that um, there's a superiority complex that's being evoked, but it's on the Hispanic side, and and I think uh, with um, with uh, Lopez, uh, the guy who's from the Movimiento Confederado Restaurador de la Cultura de Anahuac, that guy he at first he was he was a Hispanophile when he started out in the twenties as a young guy. And then later on, he evolved into more of an indigenous and then adopted this Mexica identity. And so he still had that sort of uh, nationalistic and supremacist view of himself, but now was being uh, uh, framed under the Mexica Azteca ideology and identity. And the same thing was going on with Luna Cárdenas. He's the first one that goes, he was studying in Germany around the time that Hitler and the Nazis were barely making a name for, for themselves. They were uh, gaining power and right before uh, uh, the, 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 you know, the Second World War, 
uh, sort of uh, hits. He's over there. He's studying and he's picking up on some of these ideas about Arianism. And so he's bringing that stuff back. But he's saying and, and so he's not necessarily saying that the Aryans that the Mexicas were Aryans or that Aztecas were Aryans, but that Aztecas and that Anahuac culture from Anahuac mm. was just as great or if not even greater than the Aryans themselves. So he was trying to place the indigenous Mesoamerican peoples on par in terms of supremacy along with the Aryans. And and I think by extension, he was trying to insinuate that the Mexica Azteca were part of that same tradition of the Aryan race, which is, if you really do a deep dive, which we're not going to get into here, it, it sort of correlates back to this idea of the lost world and ancient civilizations and the primal civilization of Atlantis that spawned all these other civilizations of which, you know, uh, the Mesoamerican peoples were. So it, it gets very convoluted quickly with, uh, you know, esoteric ideas and these weird occultist ideas as well that were also part of the Nazi party and, and their ideology. So mm -hmm. there's, there's some correlation there. There's a lot of back and forth sharing of ideas going on with these groups. Yeah, and, and I bring this up, Luis, because um, I want to have a, I, I need, I, what I want to do is do some research and see if there was any direct connection between these right-wing movements that came out at that time and the Mexicayot organizations, and if there was any um, crossover between their membership or their leadership or their ideology. I'm, it feels to me like there had to have been but I just mm -hmm. haven't come across it yet. So right, right. That's my I mean, I homework. think there's there's a there's a, I mean at, at least just in terms of the let's say the ideological aspect. Um, for instance, going back to the to the uh, gold shirts, no, and, and the fact that they have Mexicanist in their name, this notion of Mexicanist or Mexicanism, right, is is a kind of a it's an idea that's let's say up for grabs, right particularly into the 1930s, as Ruben was saying, you know, the, the impact that Nazism and, and other fascist experiences have in places like Latin America is that it forces um, nationalists in general to kind of look for just alternatives or alternative articulations of that nationalist sentiment, right? They start talking about nationalism as a sort of... Um, just as a kind of idea, a sentiment, a feeling, right? That in fact could become a sort of connection to other nationalist peoples, right? Um, and this is a kind of an interesting paradox, no? Like how can you understand, how can you, we think of a, a nationalist internationalism, if you want, mm -hmm. no? But that is the project of the far right, right? Fascists, neo-Nazis, all, all around the world do find a sense of brotherhood, right? Yeah. They are connected by that history, by that, that intellectual history. Now, It wasn't group, about the white supremacy. Uh, it was about the friends we made along the way. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, of course, not to, not to uh, set aside the white supremacy part, no? But there is something about that, let's say, the intellectual and political environment of the 1930s that would make someone like uh, like Nieva Lopez, right, or, or all of these people around him, to be attracted to to the ideas of Nazism or or something that Nazism represented for them, without necessarily embracing 
all of it. It was, mm-hmm. yeah, I, know. I think it was really the nationalism and this idea of supremacy. Right. Everyone's vying for supremacy, whether it's Aryan, whether it's Mexica, Azteca, or whatever other uh, identity, or the Vikings now, for example, is one of those uh, mm-hmm. that comes into play as well. Mm-hmm. So everyone that is nationalistic and has sort of authoritarian inclinations tends to sort of lean in this direction of fascism in some way. <laughs> it's really strange. Well, what I've, what I've seen with the, with the ARM, with their modern incarnations on Facebook, is they point to Nauiolin symbols. And they're like, see, the, the, they equate it to the swastika, right? And they're like, this symbol has always been part of our heritage. So it's not a big deal for us to adopt swastikas. And it, it feeds into our, you know, it's, this is a symbol that we'll ra- we could rally our people around. But, you know, as with all fascists, neo-fascists, they're just not very smart. So they don't know. But but don't don't underestimate the power of the of the myths mm, that they create. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely. The, right. Which is which is really what has I think what has informed the the endurance of of these ideas, these symbols. I mean, for for so many decades, no, is that somehow you know the the, the swastika, for instance, um, does have these meanings. For instance, for I don't know, neo-Nazis in Chile, right? Or or Mexican far-right Catholics in Guanajuato, right? Uh, I mean, that's that's what, what, for instance, something that fascinates me is how does this thing that it already is, you know, has a mythical articulation, right? With the Aryan race and all this stuff. How does it become appropriated, translated into these very different realities? And how is it that people embrace them with so... With, with so much fervor, no? so much mm-hmm. you know, zeal into into uh, they attach their own localized interpretations of, mm-hmm. and their aspirations for what they view their version of uh, nationalism to be, and they they uh, um, they sort of uh, put those on that on the swastika to reflect. Uh, what they believe, so it doesn't necessarily reflect like the the Nazis of Hitler, but it reflects their version of what Nazism is, right? That's what you're you're trying exactly. to get at, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I want to thank Dr. Eran Avila for joining us today and having such a fascinating discussion about one of my favorite topics: uh, right wing nationalist weirdos <laughs> and. Before we go, do you have anything you would like to plug? Any upcoming presentations? Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I can certainly plug that. Uh, my Twitter hand is yo uh, underscore Erran. And you can find me there uh, on Twitter. And um, well, yeah, just uh, in, in a, maybe a couple of years, two, three years, uh, look out for a book um, that is yet untitled, but Derrota Mundial 2. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> defeating, defeating Derrota Mundial, right? Uh, but it will be uh, basically about, uh, it will contain a lot of these uh, stories, histories, right? Of how um, we can think of Mexico also as a right-wing nation, hmm. right? As opposed to just the revolutionary tradition and the radical traditions. Uh, there's, there's another Mexico that lives alongside that one and that we should we should pay attention to. So would this Absolutely. be Mexico más profundo? 
el México más facho. Más There you go. That's a good one. Well, thank you, Luis. Well, you know, uh, my friend, the truth doesn't always taste good, but it's always good for you. I want to thank Dr. Eran Avila, my co-host, Dr. Tlacatecat, and yours truly. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tales from Atlantis. Mexico is under siege. A plot to poison the minds and hearts of our people, to turn them into religious fanatics. This evil, this threat, it will not be tolerated. You're an army fighting for God and for the church. We will fight with honor and dignity. In the United States, we've been following your war with the Catholic Church. I would hardly call it a war. There is a time for peace, a time for war. Even if I were younger, I would not fight. You cannot fight for something you don't believe in. I believe in freedom. The fate of Mexico is in God's hands, not yours or mine. This will be one of the most important battles of our struggle. If you lose this war, we're not going to lose this war. Why are you here? We want to be Cristeros. Cristeros? Yes. We are going to send a message. That freedom is our lives, and we will defend it or die trying. Que viva Cristo Rey! Que viva Cristo Rey! Thank you for listening to Tales from Atlantis, a project of the Chimali Institute of Mesoamerican Arts. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do this by visiting talesfromastlantis.com and clicking support the podcast. Your continued support will help keep the podcast ad-free and independent. Until next time, Timo Itase.